0: you're listening to the we lead well podcast where well-being matters the show is brought to you in partnership with transform education coaching headteacherchat.com and the teach well alliance enjoy the show to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I am so thrilled to tell you that today we are joined by the one and only John Tomsett. I'm sure that he doesn't actually need an introduction, but I will give him one because he deserves one. So John is a well-renowned school leader. He works to support schools and senior leaders, having taught for 33 years himself and being a head teacher for 18 of those 33 years. Um, he spent 14 of them at Huntington School in York, which is one of the country's foremost research schools. Now he works offering consultancy on school leadership, and he focuses specifically on teaching and learning and curriculum development. And they're the things that he talks to us about in the interview today, He has got so much experience in improving teaching and learning and his knowledge of curriculum is second to none. It was an absolute pleasure talking to John and being able to just discuss how he has worked to improve Huntington School. And it's really interesting that quite a few of the things that he talks about are counterintuitive or go against many of the things that we currently do in schools that we believe are improving our schools and in actual fact one of the things that John says and it comes across really powerfully in the interview is that less is more and you'll find out exactly what I'm talking about when you listen to him again this week it's another long interview because I just was enjoying talking to John so much, I didn't even notice how much time had passed. So here we go, this week's interview with John Tomsett. Enjoy. John Tomsett, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. It's an absolute honour to have you join us today. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Good to be here.
0: So you're um, you're retiring as well, aren't you?
1: Well, must... no, I'm not retiring. Oh, I'm you... moving. I'm stopping okay. being a teacher. <laughs> No, the last, I'm, I'm. I feel like a whippersnapper. Um, it's just that I've done eighteen years of headship, and there's a few opportunities, a few things I want to do. Um, I'm 57 this year, uh, and there's been a couple of things that's made me, made me think right now is the time to to move. Um, two things, personally. One, I had a um, an operation last summer to have my pacemaker replaced. Um, which is quite an extraordinary event and uh, you're completely wide awake while they while they do it and your pacemaker sits just below you just there just below yeah, your chest
0: my grandma's got one well yeah, <laughs> yeah I I, well my mom it, when
1: yeah. I had one when I was 43 and um and I thought the replacement would be dead easy I mean I quite enjoyed the first operation because you watch it all it's fascinating um but the second one I'm under this sheet and uh, the same bloke who did the first one did the second one and he have got 12 years of fibroids that's grown around the box and at one point I thought he was going to put his knee on my chest and yank the thing out oh. cause he, cause he couldn't get it out and I heard him go bugger and then he went crikey um, <laughs> and then I said what's going on he said I'm just trying to avoid puncturing your lung but you're in the oh, right yeah, place yeah. Just <laughs> he said you're in the right place if i do I said, thanks for that That's sure, and, then, and then and then he said um your legs are shaking i said yeah i can't stop them and i was just lying there and at that point as i lay on them on the operating table i was thinking yeah enough's enough really um and then in this coming december i'll be exactly the same age as my dad was when he died um and he died of cancer and i was thinking god i didn't yeah, I was 20, he was 57. And I thought, you didn't." I didn't realize quite how young he was and what it must've felt like for those few weeks when he knew he was gonna die and got terminal uh, diagnosis. So I thought, I wanna be around to see my boys grow up a little bit more. I mean, they're 20 and 24. Um, I've done my bit, I've done 18 years of headship. That's 36, I mean, 36 results days, 18 budgets. Um, I've been over a quarter of a century on SLT um, taught for thirty three years every year. So I just thought actually there's other stuff to do. And I think there are lots of really interesting opportunities for me to do stuff. Um new book came out this week. Um and you know, I've got five books, a bit of fishing, um, lots of opportunities with people like Tom Sherrington to do some work, um, working with the National College of Education, some really exciting stuff there with Stephen Tierney and and um Nick Hurd and, and and um that kind of stuff just is really, really good. And I've got some opportunities for writing as well.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that because that is one of my questions. Um, The Education Senior Leadership Masters. um, And and I was reading your blog about that and you say that you wish that such leadership programs had existed 29 years ago when you first became a member of SLT. And that really chimed with me because I wish they'd been available when I became a head of English. Because I feel like, you are in a school you sort of thrust into leadership. If you are that sort of person who wants to be a leader, you know that you can do it and that you have the capability to do it. But it takes an awful lot of learning <laughs> along the way and probably an awful lot of years. Like you were saying about Fullen and Boyle's change management work and you know uh, your knowledge of things like that. I found Cotter's um is it is, it, is it stage his change model. Uh, but I found yes. it myself. And yeah. I feel like we're we're not, or we've not been in the past in schools, been taught how to be leaders. The important things about leadership that lots of people know that needs distilling so that people who are just in into leadership can gain yeah, well, from I've, it. So Yeah.
1: I've really enjoyed the Leadership Masters because it's given me the opportunity to parcel up what I what I've learned and what I think people, I, almost like handing the baton on, I can just, um, I don't want to, I want to kind of brain dump what I've learned, but most of what I've learned, I've, I've learned retrospectively um, after the event, when I've come across Fulham, or I've come across Vivian Robinson, and you do your own reading and your stuff, um, but I think there are some really good courses now. I think it's some really good stuff, and I think National College of Education does great stuff. Ambition Institute, you know, yeah, there's some really interesting debates about about the nature of leadership in education and whether you know there's there's, there's a ridiculous conversation going on between one side saying. It's about generic leadership skills and the other side saying no it's all about disciplinary leadership skills and actually of course it's a mixture of the of the two right of course it is and, and people getting entrenched um in silly silly dichotomies um so so yeah and i and i and that's why I've, I've liked working with national college of education because they do lots of theory stuff and then stephen and i on a tuesday night say like there's your theory and our sessions are called um, turning theory into practice this is what it's like to run a budget this is what it's like to run a disciplinary this is what it's like to uh, um, kind of set up a curriculum and institute change and that's been fascinating and people have really really appreciated those juicy nights because they get head full of theory, um, but they like to know from experienced head teachers like Stephen and myself, what it's like to actually do the job on the ground day in, day out.
0: And sometimes it's about an ability to have that engagement with other leaders, isn't it? To develop your own thinking.
1: Oh, entirely. And and I've also enjoyed, because the University of Buckingham have set set the course up with um, the National College of Education, the materials are excellent so I'm actually learning as well so I look at all the materials think oh this is good I wish well that's well, I've not come across that before so I'm getting loads out of it um, as, uh, and uh, still educating myself um while we educate others
0: and that should be the case shouldn't it I do MPQSL online tutoring and I, I'm I'm the same I ha- obviously have to read all the materials that the candidates have to read and yeah. some of it I have learned a lot from myself but as as senior leaders in schools we should be modeling that shouldn't we that, that education is a lifelong process
1: yeah and i i, I do that a lot because um well I, I do this talk i haven't done it for a little for a year or so but i do a talk called 25 years of hurt um where i've been teaching 33 years but for the first 25 i got by on um force of character and enthusiasm really you <laughs> didn't really know what i was doing for the first 25 years of my yeah. career um it's been in the last day when i've got engaged uh, i've i've got engaged with the research school network i've got in de- engaged with evidence-informed practice that i now understand a bit you know there, there are times where I, I i kind of read full and six secrets of change and thought oh yeah i do that oh yeah i knew that was true but i never really I found out stuff, as I said, retrospectively, but now um, yeah, we've, we've been doing lots of work uh, at Huntington on evidence-informed practice. The book that has just come out this week called Cognitive Apprenticeship in Action um, has 23 essays in it written by my colleagues um, about how they've implemented evidence-informed practice based around the 1991 paper, um, "Cognitive Apprenticeship: Making Thinking Visible" by Collins et al. Um, and that's been that's brilliant little nuggets, disciplinary nuggets about um, the key thinking processes in each discipline and how you apply the core essential knowledge of each subject. And problem solving and it's just fascinating stuff and that and and that's been great because i've led 23 colleagues one to get published which they were dead excited about but also um to get them thinking really hard so when i was i i challenged our um i said to uh our, our food our head of food is just a god of it's just unbelievable gary littlewood and i challenged him to think about what it is to what are the essential thinking processes in being a chef, being a cook? Um, and it took ages to get to the nub, the nub of it. And in the end, you've got to have all the knowledge about how different um, ingredients react in different circumstances. Uh, and then one of the key processes is to think three steps ahead. And if you think about, if you think, of, if you, if you, if you um, think about anything you've cooked before. You know, I, I cooked i cooked egg and egg, egg and bacon on toast for my boy yesterday and i'm thinking right the toast needs to go in then but i also need to make sure that you listen listen to to make sure the the, the uh the eggs aren't going over the top and getting ruined and then the bacon have i turned that over yet so you're thinking three things at the same time and 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 when you watch gary present when he when he demonstrates to students he's he's Providing a running commentary of his thinking as he's doing stuff, um, and it's just brilliant. And so, getting people to to think about that and then to be able to articulate it in an essay of, of, of a thousand words or so um, is has been remarkable. And that and that and they've loved that learning. They've loved developing themselves. And, and I think it's 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 a hallmark of a healthy school when. And a happy school, and an intellectually interesting school, um, when those things are going on.
0: One of the things that I find interesting is that you say that that was from nineteen ninety one. I trained yeah. as a teacher in nineteen ninety seven, and I don't particularly think I was I was taught well. I, I loved my tutor. She was she was brilliant and quite inspirational, but I didn't learn a lot about how. Pupils think, and and the way that they would have to think in in English, and what what is it that makes English a subject that's so different from other subjects? What are they doing in English that sets that apart from everything else? And I find that interesting that providing an environment in which staff can explore those things that they probably didn't get an opportunity to do when they were training is really important.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I go back to my MPQH in 1988, my my PGCE in 1988, and um, 87 to 88, I was I was at Sussex for my um, PGCE, and Peter Abs, God rest his soul, he died in December, was the um, last December. He he was the English tutor at Sussex, lovely, lovely, lovely man. I real intellect. Great poet himself, hadn't taught for eighteen years. I think he taught six years at the beginning of his career, then never went back in the classroom again. Um, and his his seminal text is English within the Arts. Um, so he saw English very much as an artistic expression subject, and literally without this is largely. A martial parody, but he his theory was that if you taught people how to write poetry, they'd sort out the punctuation themselves, right? So so you're a mile away, and that and that he was our tutor, right? So I had no idea when I went into teaching how kids learn. I had no idea. I just remembered my two English teachers, Dave Williams and Marion Green at A level, and I kind of mimic what they did. Um, the best parts of both of them because they were very different teachers, um, and that and that was it really. And it's only been, as I say, um, in the last few years where I've where I've known anything about how brains work, anything about how you learn stuff. Um, But a lot of that has been off my own back, but also working with, you know, I think I think Tom Bennett and the research ed movement have got so much. We've got so much to be thankful for from 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 what they've done because they've certainly transformed my practice. And I've I've been able to work alongside people like Dylan William, Rob Coe, um, amazing edu researchers that have that I've learned huge amounts from. But I've always been I've also also always been very um, inquisitive. So when I remember. You know, 1988, 89. I, I say this in the beginning of the of the latest book. I I, I used to go to work from bright. to go from Brighton to Eastbourne and back in my little Foxall Nova with a woman called Kate Darwin, who's 20 years older than me. We were appointed on the same day, and we used to be really fascinated by the process of writing i'm fascinated by the process of writing especially writing at speed because most of the time when you're writing you're rereading what you've just written so you know what to write in the next sentence so we deserve we devise this two or three lesson program of of identifying in a paragraph what the teacher what the writer must have been thinking between the sentences so we call it thinking between sentences um and i didn't know that three and a half thousand miles across the atlantic that's what Collins and that were doing in cognitive apprenticeship it's exactly what they were doing um and we we designed those we designed those lessons didn't think much more of it but now i see how essential they are and i teach that all the time and i can teach it across most subjects so i can teach that at biology A level, um even though you know my my A levels are in economics, maths and English. I teach biology A level sessions where I'm unpicking picking each sentence and the thinking between. Um, all thanks to uh uh the kind of stuff that I've been working on, which has been the result of um awakening my my love of understanding the process. And I did but I st- stuff I mean, it's really easy, I think, and I love the the early career framework. It's really easy now to see what a curriculum should be for teacher training. You know, it's really straightforward, yeah. right? And you have to know how children learn, um, and that's not about kinesthetic and all that nonsense. It's about actually the brain, what happens in the brain. Um, and I, if, if there's one book I would read, it's the Hidden Lives of N- Learners by Nuttall, um, and he he says there are three there are three worlds the three lives that each learner has in the classroom one is the the life they have with you the teacher um and that is a completely false life because they just tell you what they think you want them to tell you to keep you happy right that there's, there's nothing genuine about that relationship <laughs> um then there's the life between the, them and their peers which is very real and very influential on their learning, and then there's a life that goes on in their head, which we only understand by proxy, by whatever they produce. However, we assess them, either well or badly. Um, and that's it's an absolutely. It's if there's one book to read about how children learn, that's the book. And that book, eight years ago, affected my teaching more than any other book um, I've read. And there's a, there's a bit in it where he says they they got he he and his researchers got to 80 to 85 percent certainty about whether a student had learned something over a series of lessons um, when they let's they, you know, say it's six lessons and they could tell by eight, with 80 to 85 percent certainty at the end of that whether Johnny would get it this something right in a test because they decided that they, they kind of they kind of agreed that what it needed was to have come across something three times right so if it's an area of english or area of maths or science they came across it three times that was enough to transfer it from the short-term memory to the long-term memory so i remember teaching economics years ago where my students knew more about Nuttall than they did about economics. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd say to them, how many times have you got to learn this? Three, sir. Yeah, okay. Anyway, tell me about interest rates and what happens to inflation when interest rates go up. No idea. But they knew they needed to know it three times before they could understand it. So it was fascinating. So that that kind of um, stuff we need in schools and we need teachers to know it. But the trouble is, you've got 480,000 teachers right you've got as i say in putting stuff first you've got a mixed prior attainment group of people right because <coughs> it's mass population so there's it's a huge population of people and to get consistency across that many is incredibly challenging um because you've all got you've got different qualifications different intellects different backgrounds different interests so, different contexts um and i think it's really hard to get people fully engaged with every get everybody fully engaged with with their own learning with teacher learning
0: it's interesting I was just going to say that because that is the first step isn't it it's it's creating that passion that engagement often in a way sort of reigniting within people that reason that got them into teaching in the first place although I was reading something on Twitter and it, it said why, why did you become a teacher and some of the reasons I looked at I thought oh that's, I don't really think that you know it doesn't seem like a, a good reason to get into teaching so you're you trying to reignite something within someone I don't know how you'd manage to if they just couldn't afford a master's so did a PGCE but I think often people do different <laughs> but, but that's, that's,
1: that's the case though isn't it you've, yeah. got, to re- you've got to be realistic about that
0: Yeah. And you you are dealing with with members of staff in your school who you've got the whole spectrum, haven't you, of of people and their levels of interest in teaching and Mm. different things that are going on outside of of their job that are affecting them at any point in time. So it's 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 hugely difficult. And I think that's what really chimed with me um, with the Putting Staff First book, because it was about doing the best that you can to create that environment in which people start feeling that passion again and become become more engaged. And one of the sections that I really enjoyed, because I feel like I probably didn't have enough understanding of how curriculum works. I was very passionate um, about progress in in a curriculum. So in the English curriculum, I was always really... I was a bit. I think people got fed up of me saying, "Well, what's the difference between what they're learning in year seven and year eight? Where, where are you expecting them to be at different points?" But then, how that fits within the curriculum of all the different things they're supposed to learn and the topics and the, the novels and poems and and all those things. I don't think I ever got that training or had a, a level of understanding that was that was good enough probably to be designing curriculums myself. But what interests me is the link between staff well-being and the curriculum, and it sort of links into that idea of of getting people a bit more engaged and, and interested in what they're doing. So, why did you feel it was important to have that section in the book?
1: Have a curriculum section in the book? Yeah. Um, because if you've got if you're writing if you're writing a book about schools, what is a what is a school? Um, you know, beyond what we teach you know what we teach is absolutely the heart of what a school is isn't it you know, yeah what,
0: what,
1: what the children learn there right and, and so if you don't i'm not sure you can have a book which which um ignores the curriculum
0: it's what and they're engaging in every day isn't it yeah
1: it's, it's the it's vast what, it's majority what, of time you know your your outcomes at the end of end of year six or year 11 or year 13 or the end of university or whenever, um, what person you want, what in what kind of human being you want at the end of those stages. Um, your inf- your influence is the curriculum you know, and what you what you want them to learn and and that is the the taught and the untaught and the the, the whole thing. Um, and from my point of view, I get, I get really i get really tired of the of the skills versus content debate because it's a mm. mixture of the two it's another third way isn't it um, but i also get really sad about 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 anti-intellectualism and the lack of challenge and you know all the, all that stuff and you know, you go back to that um go back to that brilliant moment in in the simpsons where i'm sure you've seen it when bart says okay so so we're going to go slower to catch up um you know that that stuff just destroys me and and there's and so i think i think getting people thinking really hard about the curriculum and understanding and this is fundamental to me that that the biggest barrier to children's progress is what they think they themselves are capable of, right? And, and it's so easy to cap that. Uh, so we, we went to mix the tape, we went to mix prior attainment teaching in modern languages at key stage four, and 85% of our students take a GCSE because we we insist they do uh, in, in modern languages. Um, and when we went to mix attainment, my, my colleagues were telling me in the modern languages department, that loads of students were able to use three different tenses in a paragraph that they never thought could do, because if we sit like when we used to set, they were never taught the three
2: yeah.
1: tenses. Now we teach them it, they can do it. Who knew, right? So so those arbitrary capping of, of what students can do because of the curriculum and the content that we offer um, seems to me almost criminal. And then the other part of it is, I went into teaching in 1988 because I'd suddenly, at university, found I liked English um, and thought how can I make a living out of English because I don't know very much of it at the moment. It'd be great if I could learn more about it and get paid. and that's why I went into teaching. That's why I went into sixth form to begin with. In my first year, I had five A level groups. You know, and I was teaching anything and everything. So, so it was both great. I mean, I loved it because um, I just had—I was voracious about about the learning and the new. You know, getting a new text to teach was just great. All the research for it—it it was like being at uni again, and I le- understood it much better. Um, and then you go from that to where I am now, where I'm obsessed with early years, really um because i now understand that if you don't get early years right uh we must give up because by the time they come to us at secondary the die is cast and Mm. any catch-up is is going to be really much more ineffectual than if we get early years right and get students um get get children early years speaking and communicating and understanding words and language so i've kind of come along all, all that way but Give me the opportunity to get completely immersed in um, sonnet writing or something. I love it to bits. Do you know what I mean? But you know, the idea of you know, and, and you know, teaching students how where that idea came from and why use that word and not that word and all that kind of stuff is is just phenomenal. And, and that so if you can give people the opportunity to do that. Um, in a you know, go back to my first book, Love Over Fear, in a climate which has where, where you do everything you can to remove a sense of threat or fear, right? So they can try stuff out and fail, and that's fine. Um, then you've got a chance of creating a school where people are intellectually interested in what they're doing. Um, and I think that helps in every way, it helps in well being. Um it helps in staff retention, you know, and it's people like want to come to work because it's an interesting place to be where you're treated humanely and, and it can't be hard, can it?
0: Before we find out more about how John has supported the improvement of teaching and learning in his school, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents, and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of head teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, have even launched the very first school leader planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Headteacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Headteacher Chat. It's what headteachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. It's interesting that um, a couple of things um, that I just want to mention... In terms of being a leader, how do you provide time for the staff in your school to do the learning, the research? Because one of the things that I wanted to do in my previous school was to take a lot of the twilight and inset time and turn that into time for departments to do subject knowledge and subject pedagogy work and that might have been I've mentioned this in a previous episode that might have been allowing a department time to have an hour where they look at two poems that they study with the children and have an intellectual discussion about those poems as a department I think that would improve their teaching hugely so where do you find the time for staff to start engaging more in those subject knowledge curriculum pedagogic conversations with each other because they're so important aren't they well
1: in 2009 i i came here in 2007 um and these numbers are ingrained in my brain um and in uh, that was old money then so in old money in 2009 um well, in 2007 when i came here uh the school attained 59 percent english of five uh, a to c english and maths yeah. um at the end of my first year 2008 went up to 60. um and then 2009 it went to 57 so it went 59 60 57. so we threw the kitchen sink at stuff and it went down to 55 so we did all this work it just got worse so that's when alex quick you might have heard of alex Quigley. yeah um as so alex Quigley and i got together because alex was an NQT at ours, um, and at that point, he was head of Key Stage 3 English, his first little promotion. And we started doing some work together on less is more. And the SLT decided that we're not gonna do that again. We're not gonna throw the kitchen sink at stuff. So, in, so in 2000, since 2010, we've taught, every other Monday, the students go home early so we have two hours of training every other Monday. So that's you, your hours meeting a week plus an extra hour that we've gained from the students going home early. So CPD, the CPD model means that there are 90, it's every other, it's every other Monday. So there's 19 two-hour sessions, as well as your five training days, as well as your disaggregated Monday and Tuesday in July that you don't go in for. Yeah. Plus the subject leader meetings are all about. Pedagogy and stuff—they're not about admin; they're about yeah. re- stuff that really matters. We found other ways of doing the admin. You know, you can do a newsletter on a, on a on a Monday morning or a Friday afternoon for the following week. You can you can get over the admin. You don't have to spend hours on the admin. Um, you can pair all that back. So, what that what that did was set up what we call teaching learning forums. Nine, 19 of them over two hours plus your training days and I'm really we are really good on saying like training days as much as we can those training days five training days of for subjects right I'm not going to fill it up with rubbish. I'm not going to fill it up unless there's a guest speaker we really need to come and see we're gonna let you have three or four hours together doing your stuff. Um, and our school development plan is tiny you know has has the same things on it every year because we just need to get better at stuff on the on the stuff that matters rather than go from one thing to the other we're not like uh you know those we don't we're not like magpies picking up shiny stuff we know we know there is no easy answer we know actually you've never done vocabulary right to say oh we've done vocabulary three years ago that's just (laughs) <laughs> yes, right. You, you've got to work on that all the time. You've got to work on the stuff that we do on metacognition all the time. Beyond that, we're not there's not much else, right? And then the rest of the stuff is about knowing your subject, um, really well and brilliant explanations of, of stuff that's that's difficult to understand. Um, that's all it is, it, 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 and I don't think it's very hard. People massively overcomplicate it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think creating structures in schools for schools to be really good is difficult. People make it difficult.
0: And you don't do appraisal in the same way or performance management in the same way that other schools <laughs> do it, do you? Uh, no. I I really love your approach to, um, it's more an independent inquiry that members of staff yeah. do, isn't it?
1: It's, it's it's really, it's fascinating, guys. Um, you might have heard of, Richard Sheriff, love richard sheriff he's the um he's a ceo of red kite teacher school alliance he was the president or is the president of askell um and i had a meeting with him just before lockdown last year about this time last year in my office and i said to richard um we were chatting away i said well we only have one objective for our performance management and you could see his almost literally his jaw hit the hit the table and he said you can't have one i said no we can and we do. So now you need three.
2: <laughs>
1: I said, why? Because you just do. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> just got one. And one is the completion of an inquiry question. And in our TLFs, we teach people how to teach colleagues how to conduct a disciplined inquiry into their teaching. Um, it's not research. But it is evidence-informed practice so we have a bank both by subject and by topic of of summaries of, of the best research around english math science um writing i mean whatever what are generic skills you, you you think interested in um and people can, can pursue a question so So the the latest one that I did is something like, um, what impact will eight um, 30-minute modelling sessions of writing concluding paragraphs to essay questions for economics a level make on the impact, what impact will they have on the outcomes of a class of 10 um, mid-prior attainment year 13 students? So it's really, really specific, um, and then I I do pre-tests, pre-intervention, post-intervention. I can work. We teach people how to work out um, effect sizes um, and what a control group is, and and all that kind of stuff. And they're really interested in it. And and the the performance management objective is to complete that thoroughly and present a one side of a four one side of A3 report on it at the end. It's not that the intervention works because it might not work. Um, It's that you've done it properly. I did one a few years ago where I took out um, 16 students from modern languages, GCSE, and I took out 16 of them and taught them okay i had 25 lessons on how to answer question 5 on paper 1 and paper 2 of the english language gcse you know so that's half your marks so that's 40 mm. and, and on the aka 40 and 40 yeah. after the first lesson four of them went back to the modern language lessons because they clearly thought it was easier to be there than be in my group right? which was fine which was fine right and that gave me a tiny little control group so i did this 25 lessons how to write gave them a structure and everything so that when they got into the exam, they were the type of students who would look at uh, the question, the 40 mark question and go, I don't know where to start. So they all had like a kit, like a heuristic to attach, to attack those two and at least make a really decent attempt at both those questions. So in September, I stand in front of the whole staff and I go through my IQ, my, my inquiry question. I talk them through it and I said, look, what I did, I've got these four that the control group, and I got twelve people that I that had the intervention in the, in the treatment group. The twelve who had the intervention between the mocks and the final exams, their grade went up 0.55 on average, over half a grade improvement. Oh. And I could feel, I could feel the, I could feel the whole hall going. Here he goes again, Tom it showing off. <laughs> um, and I said, and I said, the four that didn't have the intervention went up on average by a whole grade (laughs) (laughs) actually the bloody thing didn't work at all it was a waste of time they'd been better off just having their ordinary teachers because clearly the four that just had their ordinary teaching did half a grade better than the ones that I intervened with so that was great so I didn't do that intervention again
0: Yeah, but by doing that as well, I suppose you show staff that they don't have anything to worry about in terms of what they're choosing for their independent, uh, their inquiry Inquiry questions. That, that, you know, if you put yourself up there at the front and say, look, that's what I did and it fell flat on its face.
1: There's a really (laughs) good thing about, there's a really good thing around, there's a couple of things around Vivian Robinson about reciprocal vulnerability and also um, uh, Philippa, at um Philip accordingly at curie uh and it's around reciprocal vulnerability and you get s- massive buy-in and massive levels of trust where there's reciprocal vulnerability where you acknowledge the vulnerability that every teacher sh- has every time they step in front of a class um there's a vulnerability about you and the fact that i share that vulnerability um it creates a huge level of trust. And so I can have, you know, I, I had, I once had a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, um, the York secretary of the NSUWT who, is in, who taught in our school, come to me and say, John, look, I've taught this lesson. It was a revision lesson, it was an absolute shambles um it didn't work at all i videoed it could we have a coaching session Could we watch the video and you coach me through it right so that's an nsuwt rep saying there's a video of me teaching really badly can we chat about it right so if you do show reciprocal vulnerability you'll also get your staff come to you when they get when things go wrong for help and you find out about it and you can help them what what else do you want to do what else would you want any other culture so that's that's what I aim for
0: I think that that links into I said there were two things that had come out to of um something you said before um and it's the Elizabeth Kubler Ross thing isn't it she says there are only two emotions love and fear and you've written a book haven't you um about this much I know about love over fear and Mm. it focuses on the importance of being values driven and putting people at the at the center of of everything that you do and I think that what you're saying there, in terms of vulnerability and being able to show your vulnerability, and accepting that other people can be vulnerable too, but it doesn't mean they're weak or or not capable of of being great teachers. And I, I wanted you to just um, give your wisdom on how how you lead in that values driven way, because I don't think you can be an effective leader unless you understand your values and you let your values drive.
1: Everything that you do, I am. Um, how do I how do I lead like that? I it's it's. I think I write somewhere about how I I wrote in my first ever blog, um, in 2012. How after four years of headship, I gave up trying to be perfect because I knew I couldn't be, and I was a much better. Head after that, so I've been ahead for 18 years. But first, first four years, you you, know, you work you, yourself to the bone, and I just gave up trying to be so perfect. We did, you know, did a good job in those first four years at Lady Lumbna's. Um We went from 37th out of 48 North Yorkshire secondaries in terms of progress to third out of 48 in four years, um, but I couldn't sustain that. And then a couple of years, you know, so so you're much better. Um, when you admit that to yourself, and I think the other thing is, there's a uh, when I got here, the sit form common room, um, actually, because I was I was here in I was at Huntington in from '98 to, two, to 2003 as a deputy. Then went off to be ahead for four years, then came back to Huntington. Um, so I feel like I've been here 22 years, and on the sit form common room wall was a uh, a mural of a picture of gandhi and him saying that happiness is when what you say and what you think and what you do are, are in alignment um and i've always thought that's true so i think i wrote in my blog recently where i said that i'm moving on from headship that in teaching i've always been i've always felt like a round peg in a round hole I've always felt like this is the job for me. I've really, I've never felt out of place. I've always felt this this suits me and I can be who I am. I can be my natural self. I don't have to put on act to come to work and be this head teacher. I can just be John Thompson. And that's been an incredible privilege that I've, that I've been lucky. Lucky to have had a job where I could do that, but also chose to do that chose to be myself chose to be who i am so so that's when that's when you really understand your values and and who you are and you there's also a logic to it isn't there because if you think about it we we teach 1694 lessons a week huntington and i teach three of them so, so if I'm going to keep my job, I've got to make sure that the other 1,691 are taught really well. And you're not going to do that. by. You know, that's not going to happen if people feel scared. It's going to happen if, you know, it's about love over fear. The, the title of Love Over Fear comes from um conversation I had when I was, I was, I was writing the book. And I got pretty much to the end of the book. And Fiona Miller, who writes for The Guardian... Um, she's Alistair Campbell's partner um, she was in York speaking at the Minster and there was a she was having dinner afterwards with with the chaplain and a couple of other of of the clergy and she said do you want to come along for, for dinner so I had dinner there six of us chatting away and I was talking about my book and I said what we've got to do is remove the fear from from the corridors of schools and one of the theologians said well the opposite of fear is love theolo- 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 in, terms of th- in, the- in terms of theology um and that's where i got the, the title of the book love over fear from because if, you know, if you're going to remove the fear the opposite has got to be in place um which theologically is love and and it's kind of really resonated with people because people feel um feel Kind of worried about talking about that kind of stuff mm. so openly in yeah. schools, because um, it's all about results, 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 and I think, I think great results come as the byproduct of creating the culture. That's uh, a really important. That's why love over here is so important, and school culture is so important. So results are a byproduct of creating yeah. the right culture where people grow.
2: And, and in in places where there's a a toxic environment or things don't seem to work even though they're trying to put all these things in place is because there's a there's a there's a razor sharp focus on outcomes and I always say you're much better to to focus on the process because if you get the process and the conditions and all those things right then you get the outcomes as a result. You don't have to focus exactly. on the outcomes because they come anyway. And it's the same it's the same in anything. Focus on the process, and, and and you get the outcomes right anyway.
1: The other thing I I think is really interesting that I'm a big fan of is because uh, bizarrely I teach economics and business studies now. um Is the Kaizen philosophy? I don't know if you do you know what I mean by Keisen? yeah yeah
2: I've heard of it, yeah.
1: Yeah. So the Kaizen philosophy is is came up in the fifties and sixties by a bloke called Deming, who. Was an American industrialist who is credited with the the two golden decades of Japanese growth in the 50s and 60s post-war, and really the Kaizen philosophy is at the heart of the motor industry in in Japan, and every worker in in those factories has two role has two responsibilities. One is to do the job the best they can, and two. Is they have a responsibility to improve the systems they work in. So if if people are failing, it's because the systems aren't right. It's because the leadership hasn't got the systems right. Um, and so if schools are failing, I would argue. I don't, I've not. I've never met a teacher who wants to do a bad job. No. I've never met a teacher who wants to do a bad job. If the systems aren't right, and if people can't do their job very well, then the systems are failing in the school. And my job is to clear out all the barriers for staff that are getting in the way of staff doing their job as well as they can. And that is why Vivian Robinson says head teachers should teach because if you teach you find out what those barriers are as well you know if you're doing reports and it's 54 clicks on sims to enter each report then you've got to find a better way of doing that if you don't if you don't do that yourself and find out how irritating that is and how time consuming that is um it's easy to not worry about it
2: and then spend do a do or two hour training session teaching everybody how to do it as well it's yeah. is often part of the uh part yeah, of the problem exactly. there, isn't it? So
1: so that, that, that whole of philosophy is really interesting. Is my job is to get is to clear out all the barriers between my colleagues doing a great job because they've got to teach the 1691 lessons that I'm not teaching.
2: And a last question for you, and it's a it's a big, big question. So Go on. <laughs> if you can keep it. Um, because you've written a book about mental health in schools as well, haven't you? Um and we are, like currently, potentially there is a mental health crisis looming because of the, the pandemic and the lockdowns and all those things. Um, what led you to feeling that there was a, a need for that book?
1: Um, well, I, I was, um, for several years, I, I, for a couple of years, I chaired the Early Intervention um, Social Emotional Young people's health group for York, and I've always had a real interest in mental health, and there was lots of stuff being talked about mental health. Um, if you read my set, if you read that book, what's what's interesting about the well, it's not interesting but the two books, the the love over fear and, and mind over matter books, my first two books, ones about my dad and ones about my mom, um, right. and they're, and they're 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 part they're they're kind of uh they come they come as a pair really. So the first one's about my dad who left school when he was 14, no qualifications, was a postman all his life, hated it, died at fifty seven, three years before he could retire, doing a job he hated every day, getting up at four fifteen, and because he had no he had no qualifications, he had no choice but what he did. Um, And then my mum left school at 13 because she was a chronic, massive manic depressive. So she had no qualifications and she had electro-convulsive electro um, therapy treatment when she was 13. And and so we had, it was quite a tough upbringing. We had five kids, council house, no money, and and a manic depressive mother um who would go off for days and come back with the hair a different color and all that kind of stuff so i've watched over the years as um as you see a family cope with what that's like so when my dad was diagnosed with cancer in november 1984 i just started uni and um He died in the February, and for for those it's about twelve weeks, and for four of those weeks, mother was sectioned because she just went down the drain. Um, So when you've been through that kind of stuff, I understand a lot about it, Um, and and I and I just I worry about the the, all the talk around there being a mental health crisis. Um, My. My strap line for my blog is, um, is is from Hamlet. There's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. You know, you can choose how you think about it. Um, so that's why I wrote the book because I, I was concerned that there was there was some chatter about it. It's a brilliant book by Kath, Dr. Catherine Professor Catherine Eccleston. I don't know if you've come across it. Not she no. wrote it, she wrote in two thousand she wrote it in two thousand eight, um, and I met her when I was writing this book, and she she did a review for me um and herbert's called the danger of Therape- the dangers of therapeutic education she rewrote she republished it in 2018 and what she predicted in 2008 absolutely happened that the more we talked about there being a, a, a mental health crisis the more there was one um, and, you know we kind of created our own mental health crisis and so the book is very measured actually i interviewed quite some quite interesting people um, both on one side and the other of the debate. So Claire Fox, really interesting woman, Claire Fox, on one side of the debate, saying we you know we are we are in, we are medicalizing stuff that everybody just just has in their lives, and then you know Tanya Byron, who I've got a ton of time for, got to know her really well, um, saying the opposite and saying that, you know people are falling over um in schools and it's 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 terrible so there's there's two sides of the debate really and um, from my point of view i think we need to be really careful about the language you use around um mental health of children and catastrophizing stuff that doesn't exist on the other hand um when you're ill you're ill my worry is that we have medicalized just getting worried about your exams now when has that been a medical issue We've, if you're not worried about your exams it's a problem i'd argue you know you need to feel some pressure about the exams when yeah. you talk about when pressure becomes stress right healthy pressure that's fine I, you know everything i've achieved in life has, has come under some healthy pressure um, yeah. it's it's knowing that you know how you stop it becoming stress
2: I think it's interesting that I've said this before that the more we teach children about mental health I don't like using the word issues but mental health challenges do we sometimes is it a self-fulfilling prophecy then that that some children will look at that and then end up in the funk of something because they see that but the the flip side of that is that now I think as adults, we can see, like, I talked to my grandma a lot. She was a warrior. And it's only now that she realizes she she suffers terribly from anxiety, but it was never talked about. It was not, you know, our mental health Mm. conditions were not, you know, there was a taboo around it. And I think now you can, people can be reassured sometimes by going, oh, it's not just me. I'm not the only person who feels that. And, and there's more support for people. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword, really, isn't it? Mm. Uh,
1: yeah, and uh, but, you know, I, there's loads of anecdotes on there. So I remember a few years ago, several years ago now, we thought it would be a good idea. Um, we thought there was a group of girls in year 11 who would benefit from having some support from an expert person who we'd get in because we think they, we thought they'd be anxious about their exams, mm. so we told them we got this woman in at great expense from London, um, and the students hadn't got any anxieties until we told them they might have, <laughs> and, then they, <laughs> yeah. and then they got anxious. If we'd left them alone, I'd have saved a load of money, and they'd have been fine, right? So, so you've got a, re- it's, it's just really hard, and I think when we medicalize. Every when we medicalize stuff that shouldn't be medicalized, we're taking away resource from people who are properly ill, right? Mm-hmm. So probably in my career, I've known about half a dozen students who are properly ill, yeah, right, and they need huge resource, right? So one of them where there was no bed, they had to have a bed in Manchester, yeah, I had a mental health bed yeah. in Manchester, and mum and dad had to go across the M62 every other day to visit um and that's that's terrible but some of that resource has been taking up you know financial resource has been taken up by people who, who feel stressed about their exams yeah that's what happens
2: and i guess you that's get... that's similar with staff as well isn't it You, there are probably very few members of staff in school who are suffering from a, a mental health condition but but well-being is that aspect of mental health that you can help staff to keep on top of and to, and to understand themselves better so that they, they know where the tipping points are.
1: I, I, I really love, I don't know if you've come across the, the Alistair Campbell stuff about the jam jar. Um, That's brilliant. The stuff about the jam jar, I wrote a blog about it and I even, even alludes his latest book is brilliant about mental health. Um, and even alludes to, I I do an assembly on it. Fascinating, I do a fascinating assembly on on the jam jar as alice as campbell's jam jar and essentially if you've never come across it what he says is that some of the stuff in the bottom of your jam jar you can't do anything about it. you're born with it and then stuff that happens to you impacts on you and your jam jar fills up and fills up and fills up as things happen and sometimes your jam jar will explode when it gets too full so what you've got to do is do some things in your life which make your jam jar taller you can't can't get rid of stuff in the bottom of it, which is what you're born with, We can make your jam jar taller by doing stuff that you enjoy, uh, that nourishes you. And you make a list of what those things are and you make sure you do them and it grows your jam jar. So your jam jar never quite gets full. Um, and, and he said of everything he's done in you know to try and look try and out his depression everything's done the jam jar analogy has, has been the best thing for him so i do an assembly and explain it and there's a lovely bit of video when he's talking about it on the bbc and afterwards i've had several people come up to me some of them staff and say could you send that to me that's brilliant my husband's never got over his dad dying i want to show him that i want to try and see if he can build a jam jar. It's amazing what effect that, that kind of stuff has. So there are some simple things you can do. Uh, and Campbell was Campbell's stuff is great about building the jam jar um, and making sure you do stuff that, is, that, is, that ex, expands the size of it. And I, and I, and I'm, I model that. So my, my last book I published in October um, was all about fishing nothing to do with education at all um and actually i've so enjoyed writing that book because i could write it in corners of the weekend every 52 fishing tales, every one of them is between 470 and 480 words long the average is 476.1 words i had a target between 470 and 480. you look at that they're (laughs) all exactly the same length which takes some craft in itself um yeah but I just love doing that kind of stuff. Um I, I interviewed and, Andy
2: Book and he, he one of the things he talks about was, was finding things that nourish you, that that nourishment, nourishment. things that bring you joy and, and Entirely. Just finding time to do those things.
1: And, and I, I refurb split cane fishing rods, right? I, I, you know, I know that sounds unbelievably boring. Um but you know, that kind of stuff is great just you've got to you've got to have something else outside of work um and i don't you know the other point i made. if people talk about work-life balance i think it's a completely wrong dichotomy Mm. it's it's work and home right because work is an important part of my life i love my work i love what i do i get a lot out of what i do um say it's the opposite of life the opposite of life is death um and it's far from it it's a Invigorating part of what I do.
2: Yeah. I think I've said in previous episodes that it's just, it's, it's balance. It's not work life balance. It's just about, it's just finding balance and a balance that suits you. And it's different. It's different for different people. And when, when one of those elements of the balance just go, when that, when that gets out of kilter, that's when, that's when you start to feel that you can't cope. And, and I think that schools have a duty to, make sure that people when that balance isn't right that they can say something about it and they can come to whoever it might be and say look things are just I'm not fine I'm finding it a bit difficult at the moment and it's a struggle and I think if we can if we can be open and people can be honest like that and we can put support and help people at that stage then we avoid people much later along the line getting to the point that I think I got to of a virtual burnout and just mm. not being able to to do I
1: my mean, job the way I have well, been I was talking to someone just before the holiday you know, a week ago I was saying look just do 80 20 just do just 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 chuck stuff off you don't need to do do stuff just well enough and the crucial bits put your effort into mm. but don't worry and, I, and then I, I did a screenshot of my inbox which has 26 and a unread emails I said look there you go <laughs>
2: I was I, the, if I they said, need me, they'll
1: get back to me.
2: I said to my partner the other day, I just checked my emails and I I don't have very many. I'm I'm missing the days when I had eighty nine emails amazing. a day. And he said to me, You're missing it. I said, No. I was being, I was being sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. Like I love looking no. at my my inbox yeah, and seeing that inbox. just you no know, unread messages. It's great. Totally. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today That's been it's fun. been absolutely great to talk to you Good. there is an Likewise. absolute pile of stuff for people to to get their teeth into and to learn from so thank you so much my I pleasure great
1: to meet you
2: that there is there is so much of your your blogs your books so if people want to find all that stuff where do they look for
1: um www.johntomsit.com. It's really easy. Um,
0: that's oh, the best place.
2: I like it when it's easy. <laughs> that's brilliant. I, I really right. hope you can come back and talk to us at some point in the future because I could probably sit here all afternoon I, and, and talk to you. So. it yeah,
1: be interesting when I'm doing other stuff and see what my new life is like. Um, it's, a, I've, 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 it's a bit of a gamble, really, but we'll see what happens.
2: I'm sure it'll be brilliant. It's the best thing I ever did was to retire I call it retire. I call it retiring because I get to do now I get to do all of the things that I love doing yeah, and I'm just I'm absolutely loving loving my Good. life so I'm sure you're gonna thoroughly enjoy it thanks John
1: take care nice to see you
2: I just want to say thank you to John for taking
0: the time to come and talk to us today I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed that interview and I learned so much from it I just think that John has so much to say about leading a school intellectually. He believes that the teachers in his school are intellectual and that teaching is an intellectual job and that's at the centre of everything that he does and you can tell that in the way that he speaks. One of the key things that I think he said that links into that is that a sign of a happy and healthy and intellectually interesting school is teachers who love learning and are eager to engage in their own development. And you can clearly see that John's passion for learning and for continuing to develop as a leader through reading, through research, through developing himself as a teacher and as a leader is particularly inspirational for his staff. And he acts as a role model in that respect. And I love that about him. His passion for learning obviously, clearly, engages the staff in his school. And they see that. And They see the way that he role models that. And that has an impact on them. And you can see how he's clearly developed a community of learners in his school. The other thing I think that I was really interested in what he was talking about when he was talking about thinking about thinking And I wonder how many senior leaders in school spend time to really understand how people learn so that they can engage their staff and provide adequate and appropriate CPD for their development and have a real understanding of how children learn. So that that can feed into the curriculum and so that there can be challenge within the curriculum, but a curriculum that supports the way that children learn best. The book that he recommended, I'm just going to mention again because it is it is an absolutely brilliant book, is called The Hidden Lives of Learners. So that's one to go out and, and get and, and read. The other thing that I think is really important that John says is when he talks about love, over fear and he has written a book about that and it's it's something that he is brave enough to talk about that love comes before fear if you work in a school where fear is the pervasive feeling then improvements are not going to happen so love has to come before fear and finally This idea, and I'm going to come back to it again, I've mentioned it at the start and I'm going to come back to it again, is the idea that less is more. For example, instead of three targets on the performance management or appraisal in Huntington, when John was there, there was just the one and that was for the um, inquiry project that the staff do. He talks about the school development plan being tiny, not this huge cumbersome document with hundreds of targets on it, but something that is brief and focuses on the specific things that the school wants to improve and focus on. And not just for one year or two years, but for a significant and sustained period of time so that you can ensure the improvements happen. Whatever you take from today's episode, I am certain that you are taking something that will be useful to you and something that will help you to create impact in your school. So thank you for listening. That's all we've got time for today. But just before I go, I'd like to invite you to join the We Lead Well Facebook group. We are increasing in numbers every week. So if you could join that, that would be amazing. Just searching We Lead Well on Facebook and you will find us. If you would like to get in touch with me to find out about how coaching could help you personally, in your leadership or in your school, you can visit my website at www.transformeducationcoach.com. I would love to have a chat with you. And whatever you do this week, I'm sure that you'll be looking forward to the Easter holidays. If it's not already the Easter holidays for you, have a rest. Do something that you enjoy, something that nourishes you. Get out into the spring sunshine, although the weather forecast says it might be snowing by next Monday. So get out this weekend and enjoy yourself. And I will speak to you next time. Take care of yourself. Take care of your staff and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, Head Teacher Chat and the Teach Well Alliance.